Amen. Well, if you would, I invite you to turn with me now in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2. And uh, we came to the end of Acts chapter 2 last week, and you'll see uh, we're still in chapter 2. And what I want to do this week, we're going to actually rewind a bit, and we're going to do a deep dive into some verses that we already covered. And that was maybe a month or two ago now, but it was in the second half of Peter's sermon, verses 36 through 39. And one brief comment before we read the text. This morning, we are going to be exploring together one of the deeper currents in Scripture. And that is this notion of the promise. And that notion, we we read of it here, uh, especially in verse 39. And so, what I want to say is that last week's sermon, that, that leaned toward the practical side. That was a more practical sermon. This week's sermon will lean toward the doctrinal side. Okay, and some of you will love this, and you're already cheering me on, and others, others of you will love this less. <laughs> and, uh, and that's okay. Either way, this is good for us, and as God's people... We need to think hard as believers if we're going to understand his word. So, and this is the encouragement, it's to put on your thinking caps. Right, this morning we are going to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. I've tried uh, not to make this sermon too much like a lecture, but just to give you a heads up, Uh, There's going to be a lot of truth on the front end with a wee bit of application, dense application at the end. So that's my prefatory remark. If you would, I invite you to stand now for the reading of God's word. So Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, uh, I warned you that we're going to be doing a deep dive today. And in fact, the entirety of this sermon, we're going to explore one concept here. And that one concept is found in the term, the promise in verse 39. Peter says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And when we see this term, it's like we're looking at the very center of a massive galaxy. And if we zoomed out, we'd see that the galaxy is actually much, much larger even than we first realized. And so we're going to be in explore mode today. And I'm sorry to do this to you, but I only have one point today. It's not much of an outline. Uh, And that one point is in the form of a question. 
which is this. What is the promise and where does it come from? It's a composite question. We're going to take it all in one piece. What is the promise and where does it come from? And as we begin, I want to ask the children, and children, pay attention this morning and tell your parents to pay attention because the question I have for you and the question I want your parents to help you with after this sermon is this. What is the storyline of Scripture? Is there a central story in Scripture? Is it kind of just a a bunch of random stories, all kind of somewhat related and, and jumbled together in the Bible? Or is there one unified storyline and it all connects together? That's the question I have for you this morning. So what's the promise and where does it come from? That's, that's how we're going to try and answer that question through this promise language. Now at one level, as we read the account in Acts, the answer, it's quite plain. We just read the text and in it, the term, the promise is explained by what immediately proceeds. Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. It's the forgiveness of our sins and it's the very Spirit of God indwelling inside us and giving us new life. And the Spirit is the central focal point. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. And we see it happen in Acts 1. The Spirit is poured out on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. The disciples speak in tongues, and the people there ask what in the world is going on. And so Peter stands up to explain, and he begins that this had been seen by the prophet Joel. And the first verse he quotes from Joel is this. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So Peter quotes Joel's prophecy. And many of you may be aware, you will be aware, that the Spirit is spoken of elsewhere in the prophets. The coming of the Spirit is prophesied actually in multiple places in the prophets. But what about The rest of Scripture, if the coming of the Spirit, right, the Spirit is the one who would breathe new life into dead bones. That's Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones and God's people. Once unable to obey God's law, now they are given new life and power by the Spirit. It's a big deal, right? And if it's such a big deal, we might ask ourselves, does the promise of the Spirit come before the prophets? Did any of the Old Testament saints before the time of the prophets, did they have any notion of God's spirit? And I'm going to channel a bit of Ligon Duncan here. He's a professor, one of my professors that I had at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he helped me see some of this larger biblical context for this promise here in Acts 2. And I'll just say, if you want more of this, just Google Ligon Duncan infant baptism, okay? And he, and he talks about this passage in Acts 2, especially as it relates to infant baptism. And so we'll get to that in, in a moment, actually. But Ligon Duncan asks the question, where was the promise first made? 
Peter mentions the promise, of course. Jesus speaks of the promise of the Father. Well, when did the Father first make that promise? And we might venture to guess that it was, in fact, in Joel. That's what Peter quotes, or maybe one of the other prophets. But surprisingly, Ligon Duncan says it's actually in Genesis 12 that God first made the promise to Abraham. And of course, this isn't Duncan's own argument. He quotes Paul in Galatians 3 in verses 13 and 14. And to give you some context, in Galatians 3, Paul's speaking about how the law condemns us and it places us under a curse because we can't keep it perfectly. But Jesus frees us from that condemnation. So picking up in verse 13, again, Paul in Galatians, and he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit. There's that language. So that we might receive the promised spirit spirit through faith. Now these two verses are mind-blowing verses when it comes to understanding the storyline of scripture. Here what Paul is saying is that what Jesus did, he did so that Abraham's blessing might come to us, to Gentiles, and in fact to all people. And what it means to receive Abraham's blessing is to receive the promised spirit. In the Greek, these two clauses in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. These two clauses are coordinate clauses. They're two parallel statements, each explaining the same reality in different words. So one commentator writes, and this is, F.F. Bruce, he begins with a question. But in what form does the blessing of Abraham now come on believing Gentiles? The answer to this question is supplied in the second clause. The substance of the promise is the gift of the Spirit. Another commentator simply writes, the gift of the Spirit is the substance of the promise. Okay, now... Pause here for a moment. If you're like me, this is where we can get tripped up. And so this is where we have to do that hard mind work. Because if you read the Genesis narrative and the promises made to Abraham, nowhere do we find an explicit mention of the Spirit. So how can Paul say that the blessing of Abraham is the promised Spirit? Is Paul seeing things that aren't there? Is he reading into the text? And at this point, this is big. This is huge. What we have to understand is this. As the New Testament authors, as they read the Genesis narrative, they saw that Abraham was promised a place and a people. We read about this in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. God tells Abraham that his offspring will be like the sand of the seashore, and that he'll give them the land of Canaan, which will be their land forever. The New Testament authors read these promises, and under the illumination 
of the Holy Spirit, they came to see that these promises were ultimately cosmic in their original scope. So from the beginning, the people and the land represented universal blessing. So let's consider where we actually see this in the New Testament, looking first at the land promise. And we're going to get to connecting this to the Holy Spirit. But the land promise made to Abraham is spoken of in at least two places in the New Testament. And we'll look first at Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, we get this special insight into how Abraham himself understood the land promise. The author writes, beginning in verse 9, By faith he, speaking of Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And why did he live in that land as a foreign land? Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham was looking for something, and it wasn't the land of Canaan. It was a city directly from God. And then skipping ahead a few verses, we learn a bit more. In verse 13 then, picking up, these all, and that is Abraham, Sarah now, and all the saints who came before, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged, listen to this, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So they didn't believe they actually belonged here. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. If Abraham just wanted a homeland, he could have gone back to Ur, right, in Mesopotamia. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So Abraham, according to Hebrews, Abraham rightly recognized himself as a stranger in exile on earth, even though for a time he lived in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. Even then he desired something greater, and God had in fact prepared something greater. What we see here is that the land promises of the Old Testament, again, they are inherently symbolic of much greater blessings. Just as the animal sacrifices in the temple, they were just types and shadows of the greater reality to come, and the greater reality is Christ. So too the land of Canaan represented a much greater blessing from the very beginning. In promising Canaan, God actually promised something much greater. And we see this not only in Hebrews 11, but in Romans 4. And this is the second text we'll look at briefly. In Romans 4.13, the land isn't Paul's main concern, but it comes up in a passing remark. Paul writes this. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Right, did you catch that? I, I paused to help you catch it. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he reads the Genesis story. The land of Canaan is named in chapters 12 and 15 and 17. And yet, what is the full depth of the promise? 
that he would be heir of the world, Paul writes. That was the full significance of the land promise. That was the promise in Paul's words. Objectively speaking, according to Paul, Abraham would inherit the entire world. And Canaan was just a down payment on that inheritance. So if you read the accounts in Genesis, you can actually see how Abraham might himself have understood this and looked for that greater city. In Genesis 12, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Genesis 17, God says this, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. It's Genesis 1.28. This has been God's plan for his people from the very beginning. They would fill and inherit the entire earth. And God doesn't change course with Abraham and then choose to give him and his descendants just a sliver of that greater pie. In fact, Abraham's descendants, again, according to God's promise, the full number of Abraham's descendants, they would fill the entire earth. And this brings us to then the second component of the promise to Abraham. As we just read, God promised him that he would be a great nation, and in fact, many nations. So there's a place and there's a people in the Abrahamic promise. And what we see with the people is that just as Canaan always represented a much greater reality, so too from the beginning, the Jewish people were only the starting point. Yes, the Jews would be blessed by God, but in and through them, so would all the peoples of the earth be blessed. Again, what does God tell Abraham? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Abraham, that's how they'll be blessed. And in the New Testament, we see that this promise is being fulfilled as the Gentiles place their faith in God, just as Abraham did. So in Galatians 3, we're returning now to Galatians 3, beginning in verse 7, Paul writes this, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And here too, what's amazing about this is that Paul's not just saying that, hey, Abraham believed and was blessed, and that's just the paradigm for all of us. That's just kind of how, how God works. That's the formula. Have faith and God will bless you. No, Paul's point is actually deeper than that. It's that when Gentiles believe, when we believe, we actually become heirs of the very same promise made to Abraham. And this now brings us full circle, right? Because again, just a few verses later, Paul will say that Jesus died for us so that, again, back in verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to 
the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Ultimately, according to scripture, God promised to Abraham that one day he would pour out his spirit on Jew and Gentile alike. And that is on believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And this is one of the great conclusions of Galatians chapter 3. This is what Paul writes at the end of the chapter. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. In the old covenant, it was the, the males, the firstborn, who would inherit the blessing. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So as we read the New Testament, what we learn is that the new covenant in Christ is in fact the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And beyond that, it's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Right, so I'm using covenant language now to speak of God's promises. And the new covenant is the age in which we receive the life of the resurrected Christ by his indwelling spirit. Okay, and so I'm going to reiterate this. Here's one of the big conclusions that we've reached. The new covenant is not something more or better than the Abrahamic covenant. It's actually the Abrahamic covenant in fulfillment. If we want to say that new covenant is somehow different than the Abrahamic covenant, we can say that insofar as in the Abrahamic covenant, God says the promised blessings are coming. And in the new covenant, God says they're here. Or to put it differently, Christ says, I'm here. And so when the scripture speaks of the new covenant as new, it's new in relation to what? The old covenant, which is a term, it's a technical term in the New Testament for the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant, okay, now, we're, now we, we switch gears, all of a sudden I'm introducing the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant has come to an end. It has been fulfilled because the types and shadows, Hebrews says, they gave way to the substance, the real thing, who is Christ. And that is a whole sermon in and of itself, how the new covenant relates to the Mosaic covenant. But in relation to the Abrahamic covenant, and this is Paul's point in Galatians 3, in relation to the covenant of promise, the new covenant is not an advancement beyond the Abrahamic covenant. It's the continuation of, and it is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It is the Abrahamic covenant in full bloom. That's what the new covenant is. It is the bud opening up into full flower. So we began with this question, what is the promise that Peter speaks of in Acts 2? And the answer that we've reached is this, it's the promise first made to Abraham, that the Spirit would be poured out on his descendants, Jew and Gentile alike, on all those who would place their faith in the Messiah, who is Jesus. That's the promise. And so we've traversed a lot of biblical terrain, okay? And what I want to suggest, now we're getting into the, the application part, okay? So there's, there's a few major takeaways here for us today. 
I've got three, three things here. And the first is for us simply to see that God's covenant promises, they do not fail and they do not change. God doesn't start different programs or upgrade his offer or have to rework his plan. He doesn't have to revise anything. And he doesn't offer to one group of people one set of blessings and to another group of people another set of blessings. Rather, all of Scripture expresses one united storyline in which God is offering to all mankind, again, Jew and Gentile alike, starting with Abraham and his descendants, but he's offering to all mankind the gift of restored friendship with himself in and through Jesus. That is what the Abrahamic covenant was about, and that is what the new covenant is about. The land promises and the promises of a restored Jerusalem and of a restored temple. We read of those things again and again in the Old Testament. Those promises aren't exclusive to ethnic Jews. Those promises will be fulfilled when? Scripture says, in the new heaven and the new earth. When, in Revelation, what does the Apostle John call the new heaven and the new earth? He says, they are the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. Right? That's what he calls the new creation. That's when the new Jerusalem, the city will be restored. And the city is in the shape of what? A cube. Just like the holy of holies in the temple. Because in the new Jerusalem, the entire city is the temple. And that's because God is there in the very center of it, seated on his throne. That's ultimately what the temple was always about. It's God's dwelling in the midst of his people. So this is what one theologian calls the mother promise, God's dwelling with his people. The promise made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, and to the Israelites, and to the church. He calls it the mother promise. It's all part of God's one singular promise to, in the end, dwell in our very midst. So God has had one mission from day one, and it's to create a people for himself and to dwell in our midst as our God and to shower us with his goodness and to receive our praises. So that's one takeaway. God's covenant promises do not fail and they do not change. They remain the same, and they will all be fulfilled. And this is what bleeds into and leads us to the second takeaway for us this morning. As we read Scripture, we can know that every blessing we read about and every promise we come across will ultimately be ours in Jesus. There is no part of the Bible that gets left out of the believer and we have to say, well, that was for them, that was those people, or that was that individual. Even the temporary blessings that certain individuals enjoyed, right? Wherever we see the good will of God in Scripture, we can read of his kindness and mercy, of his blessings, and know that one day sooner or later, we will be recipients of everything that God could possibly offer. And this is simply Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The promises to Abraham, 
Even the promise of an eternal throne to King David. Listen to what Jesus promises to those who are faithful in Revelation 3. And this is connected to what David, what is promised to him. Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, he says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I think that is one of the most shocking verses in all of Scripture. I'm not just saying that. I think I really mean it. That is an incredible promise. We're told that we will sit on the very throne of Jesus himself. I was reading Psalm 146 this past week, and this is what I read, and I'll just share a few verses from the middle of the psalm. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. And listen to this. This is what God does for his people. Who executes justice for the oppressed. Who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoner free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. What I want you to know is that if you are in Christ, you are not wicked. But you are righteous because you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And all of the blessings that I just read about, they belong to you. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is speaking of Jesus. Or more literally in the Greek, all the promises of God are yes in him. Now, of course, it's not in this life that we will receive all that God has. The apostle Peter calls us exiles and sojourners, just as Abraham was. And Paul speaks generically about the sufferings of the present time. So we might not receive everything in this life, but one day when Jesus returns and brings the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem with him, all things will be made new and perfect, and he will wipe away every tear. I, uh, as I was thinking about this, I, three couples came to mind who are struggling with infertility. You know, so what about them? Because Scripture says in Psalm 113, he gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise Yahweh. In the end, Jesus promises to us in this life, he says that in Mark 10, Jesus says we will receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, I know it might be hard for us to believe that sometimes, you know, we don't want things spiritualized. I don't want children just in the church. I don't want just a spiritual family. I want children for myself. God understands that desire, that longing. He created us to desire children, but he loves us. And if we can believe it, as we are joined to Christ, 
we truly do have something in him that is greater even than our own earthly families. One day in heaven, we will all be connected in a kinship that runs deeper even now than blood. Already we have that kinship. We'll just realize the sweetness of it to the full degree in heaven. And so as we read scripture, we read it for ourselves. All the promises are ours. And we read it as one unified storyline in which everything that God has to offer is offered to all who are his own. That's the second takeaway. Thirdly and lastly, this is the last practical point I want to say. If you're a believer and you have children, you should baptize your children. Uh, I realize this last point is sort of coming out of left field. I wanted to make this an entire sermon point and explore this further, but I realized I was running out of space and time. So here's my mini argument for why, as believers, we should baptize our children. And it's going to be real many. Okay? And I realize that some of you will have questions, and I invite you to come, and I'd love to discuss those questions with you afterwards, so come and talk to me. But here's the argument. As we saw, and if we're reading the scriptures rightly here, as we saw, then the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are really one and the same plant. And it's not uncommon for theologians to use this plant or tree metaphor actually to explain this relationship. I stole that metaphor. It's not my own. The Abrahamic covenant is the promise in seed form and the new covenant is the promise as a fully grown oak tree, right? Much bigger than the acorn from which it came, but still it came from that acorn. And so, you following me? Tracking? If the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant in promise form, and if the new covenant is the Abrahamic covenant in fulfillment form, then we should expect that. Unless we are told differently, in the New Testament, we should expect that children are a part of God's covenant people now in the new covenant, just as they were in the old covenant. And again, channeling Ligon Duncan, he says this, he, he says, here's the question, and again, he's looking at Acts chapter 2 as well, he says, here's the question, on the morning of Pentecost, believers and their children were part of the covenant family of God. On the evening of Pentecost, were children out. You certainly wouldn't get that from the language of Peter. And if they were, if that was an important point, where does Peter stop and explain that? Right? And Duncan makes the point that the language in particular in Acts 2.39, it mirrors what we see in Genesis 17, where the covenant promises are for who? They're for Abraham and his children and any foreigners who become a part of his household. And then in Acts 2, we have this similar threefold grouping. Peter says the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And I think that Duncan is right. If children were, for some reason, not included in the new covenant, you'd think that Peter might have been a little bit more careful with his language because who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews whose children had always been under the realm of God's covenant blessing. Peter, he wasn't being sloppy. He meant what he said. The promises are for our children. And so the sign of the promise, baptism, 
that is for our children as well. Right? Just as in the Old Testament, circumcision didn't guarantee the covenant blessings for Abraham's children, so too in the New Covenant, baptism does not guarantee that our children will be saved. It does not guarantee that we will receive the covenant blessings. But what it does, it's meant to be a gift. It's meant to be a blessing to us. It's meant to encourage us and to instruct us to take hold of the covenant promise that God makes. And the promise is that here in the covenant, if you trust in me, and if you trust in my provision of the sacrificial lamb, here in this provision, you will have life. Baptism doesn't say, yes, every child who receives the sign will in fact believe that. It's the promise to them that if in fact they do trust in Christ, the covenant provision for us, then in fact, yes, they will have life. Baptism is meant to speak to them and to encourage them to take hold of Christ because God rightfully has his claim not just on us, When we come to Christ, when we give ourselves to God, what we see throughout Scripture is that God has his claim on everything we are and everything we have, including our children. And so it's only right to baptize our children, to place the covenant sign on them because they are, in fact, included under the covenant. They are part of the covenant community. God loves them as well. And it doesn't mean that salvation is automatic. It means that they grow up in this context. They grow up with believing parents, with God offering himself to our children in and through our discipleship, in and through this community and the preaching of the word. And the children, should they eventually turn from God, there's no other option for them. At that point, they will be covenant breakers. God rightfully has his claim on their life. Our children, we need to instruct them and to warn them the only option for them, the only good option, that is, is to receive the promise because they've heard it. They're part of this covenant community and Christ has been offering himself to them from day one. Again and again and again, every Lord's day, Christ has been speaking to our covenant children holding forth his blessing and the free offer of eternal life. That is why we baptize our children. So the storyline of Scripture, then I'll just tie this all up. Children, what is the storyline of Scripture? Is there a unified storyline? The answer is yes. The story of Scripture is of a good God coming to a sinful people and offering to us the free gift. We don't have to do anything to earn it. We only have to trust God, offering to us the free gift of eternal life in his Son. That's the promise, and that's what we take hold of. So believe that. Believe that, children. Believe that Jesus offers himself to you and all of us. Let's continue to take hold of that promise. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that what you have been up to from the very beginning is to give us nothing less than yourself. Father, thank you for your word, for the promises, for the ways in which you condescended and met 
your people throughout history to give them everything that you have to offer. Lord, we long for the day when all of those promises will be fully ours, when we will actually come to behold your Son seated on his throne. Lord, but until that day, would you help us to be faithful? Help us to cherish your word. Help us to trust in you and your great promises. Lord, we thank you and we praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.